Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. You don't have to live long on the earth to realize that life is a series of ups and downs. We have good days and bad days, whether it's at home or in the workplace. For the endocrinologist, that bad day can happen when a grant application or journal submission is rejected, or it could be a misstep with a patient or in the lab. Today we'll be talking about resiliency and bouncing back from those rough days. I'm very fortunate to have guest hosting with me today, Dr. Cecilia Lo Wong. Dr. Lo Wong is Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She's also a member of the Endocrine Society's Trainee and Career Development Corps Committee. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. And also with us are Dr. Joy Wu, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Stanford University, and Dr. Rob Folks, Associate Dean for Postgraduate Learning and Teaching at Royal Veterinary College of the University of London. Thank you both for being with us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. So bouncing back from failure isn't easy. I wonder if we could start by just being a little bit vulnerable, maybe sharing a time where resilience sort of helped you through a bad day. To be fair, it's quite tricky to think of single occasions. I can think about periods of my career where, you know, you have to suck it up and and get through it. And I guess early on as an early career researcher, maybe my first few years as faculty, I was quite lucky in getting a big grant relatively quickly. And so I sort of had a false impression of how easy it was to have an academic career. And as that period of time goes on and you spend that money and you start putting in follow-up grants and, and they bomb, and then you run out of money, and then you're still submitting stuff that isn't getting funded. You know, I had a, certainly had two or three years where I had no direct funding at all. And then you really do doubt whether or not you're cut out for this at all. And really, it was just reaching out to, to people around me, going back to mentors in particular, having them reassure me that, that it was something I could still continue to do, and actually taking advantage of the opportunities to, to collaborate with people to try and get your career back on track. And as soon as I started writing with other people, I got more money again. And, and, you know, that was one thing which certainly made me realize that this is what the career is going to be like. It will be ups and downs. But if you're down at the moment, there will always be an up at some stage. I think for me, it's definitely staying in academics, which I've done for a while, is persisting through rejection and failure and things like that. So early on, I was also lucky enough to get my first few grants that I wrote for and what I didn't realize is that once you have the money, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that anything's going to start working. And so I had problems with human resources and trying to hire and getting things started, getting all the work done, in addition to the things I had to do as a, my clinical work. And so there was probably about a year, year and a half where I didn't feel productive enough in the lab. And so I think that what ended up happening is you know, I had to learn how to ask for help and then um, get some tips from mentors and colleagues to try to figure out how to get through that. But I stayed in it for a very long time. I would echo the comments of Cecilia and Rob that in academics, there is a lot of rejection. And I think all of us have struggled to get grant funding at various times in our careers. And I remember, uh, you know, early on when you're writing grants as a junior faculty, after the postdoc years, you can see that you're improving. And Particularly disappointing was one grant that I thought I had dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. I had collaborators, I'd had people reviewed, I'd done all the right things, and it was not discussed, and that was really a devastating feeling. But I think to be able to sort of pick yourself up and 
take another look, look at what can be improved, take more classes in grant writing, get more collaborators on board, and really just keep trying and be persistent. So I'd like to ask both of you a question. So what factors do you think differentiate someone who's able to bounce back after failure and someone who doesn't? I think that's a really tricky question. And I think we're a somewhat skewed audience. I mean, all the people who are with us at this conference, for example, have shown resilience reaching the stage in the careers that they're at, whether they're early career researchers, whether they're very established clinicians or or, um, um, research scientists. Persistence clearly is one thing. The ability to tell yourself that you always have another opportunity. And for most most of us, certainly basic scientists, we, we do have another opportunity. The stakes are occasionally high, but they're not as high as, you know, making clinical errors, for example. So for basic scientists, it's a case of regrouping, taking a deep breath, trying to be as objective as possible about the criticism that you receive because pretty much you are criticised on a day-to-day basis, whether it's student feedback, whether it's, you know, grant submissions, whether it's people commenting on drafts of your manuscripts that you've submitted, and trying not to take things personally, because a lot of the time when you are rejected, it's not a personal decision. And that's something that's actually very hard to take early on in your career, and and detaching the, the personal element of criticism took me a very long time. I still get upset, I still get angry, but I can now come back to the rejection a few days later and realize that there are positives to be seen in in some of the comments that you get back in these situations. I think Rob has said it well. I think not taking the comments personally um, is, I would say, a very important uh, factor. And allowing yourself the time to feel a little disappointed a day or two to sort of accept that and then to take out the comments again and look at them and really be honest with yourself. I mean, reviewers really are usually trying to help you, not just to beat you down. And so to mm-hmm. be able to look at the comments and say, okay, what was it here that maybe I could have explained better? What are the points that they're making that could actually make this a better manuscript or grant submission? And I think, again, persistence is key. I mean, I can, if you don't mind me adding one more thing. I mean, I, I work alongside a lot of clinicians now in the, in the, the vet school. And one thing I don't think we do very often as basic scientists is reflect on failure or difficulties in an open way. So I know, for example, my colleagues who run busy soft tissue surgery firms every single week, they have a meeting which is purely about difficult cases that week, you know, where decisions were hard to make, where things didn't go the way that they thought that they would, and just to share openly about how they would approach that situation again. It's not the same scale, but things go wrong in the lab every week, pretty much every day as well. And that's actually where we probably learn more than when everything just goes right. So I think as basic scientists, we we need to be a bit more open about the failures, the difficulties, and just accept that that is part of how you progress. I think both of you have brought up really important points. And one of them is to debrief after something has happened. So acknowledging that it happened and then um, feeling kind of the the, the feeling, I guess, um, but then not dwelling on it. I think it's so important. And then thinking about strategies for move, moving forward. Yeah, it's, it's funny as I hear you all sharing that it's almost like the initial expectation is that failure should never happen, you know. And what we're, what we're hearing is failure is going to happen. It's probably going to happen quite a lot. It's not so much that it's not going to happen, but how do you 
get through it once it, once it does. Well, that's human nature. I think everybody wants to be told that they submitted the perfect manuscript and it will be accepted without a word of change or that the grant was you know, also perfect and will be funded as is. Mm. You know, I think that's what we're all hoping, but I've never seen it happen. Well, and I also think that it's human nature to focus on the negative or on the things that went badly. And so I think stopping and reflecting on things that maybe went well um, and then learning from the things that didn't go as the way you planned, so important. But so, I think those negative things predominate because they're much easier to document. You know, we, we invite people to, to comment on things and most people are critical when they comment. So, so we see these things written, we hear these things as being negative statements we're just not so good at, at telling somebody they've done a good job, this is a great piece of work, he dealt with that case particularly well. Those are the sorts of things that we just need a little bit more balance in in how we assess our progress, I guess, day to day. Would you both agree that when we hear criticism, it's often more in the negative camp than it is in the positive camp? Well, I heard from my chairman recently that negative comments stick five times as much as positive comments. So I mm. think we also... Uh, even if we are given an equal number of positive comments, you tend to re- remember the negative ones. I think that, again, it's just human nature. So keeping a running list of things that I think have gone well might be a useful mm. strategy. And, of course, this is a population of people who are typically, well, that exhibit imposter syndrome. So when you are an individual who, who displays those traits and you're told that you're not doing a, a great job, then that just reinforces mm. you know, lack of self-belief. I don't have imposter syndrome, I know my limits. So, <laughs> which I think is also one way to, to build more resilience is realistic expectations. And then hopefully you'll surpass them more often than you'll meet them or fail to meet them. So that's one thing I want to talk about is if we considered resiliency to be a skill, like any skill you need to train in, you want to build it up, what are some ways that we could help build up the skill of resiliency? It sounds like just basic humility you know, might be one step in a direction, but what are some other things? Again, I think it's a really tricky question, but I do agree that it is a skill, but it's something that you acquire through Mm -hmm. uh, frequently being rejected. (laughs) And I'm not so sure that I have magic bullet answers for that. What I do know is that we are far more aware that resilience is something that we feel is lacking in general in society. You know, for those of us who are teaching, you know, college students, you know, every other week there's something coming through saying we need to be helping these students better. We're failing them. You know, they're just they're not receiving the resiliency skills. And then you think, well, OK, well, why are they less resilient now compared to what it was like 20, 30 years ago when, you know, some of us were at college? And then you look at the model then and assume that because we've turned out OK, that what happened back then is clearly the way to build resilient people. What happened back then was just basic neglect. Mm. So I'm not so <laughs> sure that that's the thing to help train resilience. But again, certainly being honest with yourself about your capacity, your skills, and what you could do to do something a bit better is probably the best way to equip yourself for, for future disappointments. Mm. I think you can try to reframe rejection as opportunities. So that, uh, again, reading the comments and saying, well, you know, this is a chance to make something better in the writing of the grant or the manuscript. I think it's important to have a supportive network, um, other people who are doing the same things you are. Sometimes it feels like everybody else is very successful. At my university, you wake up every morning to the email celebrating the faculty member that just got a $10 million NIH grant or published in Nature, and it can feel like everybody else is having success after success. 
But when you talk to other people who are in similar positions, you realize everybody's encountering the same disappointments and frustrations, um, and it can be encouraging to hear. Uh, and then, you know, for me personally, uh, many of you know that I'm very active on Twitter, and it's been a place where I uh, sometimes will share the frustrations that happen. And Rob has been one of my greatest sources of camaraderie and comfort, I think, in those times when your grant was rejected and you just want to share a pout online. <laughs> so let's say I just got a rejection letter in the mail, so, and I'm pretty feeling pretty discouraged. So what techniques do you advise me on to bounce back from something like that? I think it depends if it's paper or grant. And also it depends which country you're in for starters. If it's a grant, quite often in the UK, you don't have that much recourse in terms of going back and getting feedback from the panel. And if you do get feedback from the panel, it can be as little as a sentence, which doesn't particularly help you necessarily. Paper-wise, what I've learned to do is, because I've had several rejections regularly, um, <laughs> is what I said earlier, which is read it, let myself have an emotional response to it, which I pretty much always do. And if I am upset and angry about it, quite often I will write a rebuttal in the moment. What I've learned to do is not to put an address in the email box and to sit on it for a bit and then to show it to a colleague. Most of the time who will read it and say, that's great, don't send it. And that's just enough of a cooling off period for you to go back and, and have a look to do exactly as Joy said, you know, reframe that rejection. See where actually there is praise in what you've submitted and to be judged by somebody else. There's something positive with what they've pointed out could be done better. And sometimes there's stuff which is just out and out wrong. Sometimes you can do something about that. I've certainly learned from my brief time working in the US, you know, having really good US mentors, that it's not always the case that you have to take stuff lying down. I think that's a very British way of life, which is, well, I'll just let this happen to me. But, you know, watching PIs that I work with in the US respond to criticism in a constructive way and politely pointing out, actually, I think either you've misinterpreted this or you are mistaken or thank you, but we do have something which further supports whatever it is that we're, we're trying to get published or get money for. That's been a skill that I certainly appreciate having learned from my uh, US mentors. I think it can be very helpful to share the comments with someone more senior, a mentor or someone who can give you the perspective. So I remember from my own experience as a graduate student and then now seeing the responses of my own trainees to manuscript rejection letters that often if you read between the lines, it's much more positive than you think it is at first glance. And so having that perspective from someone who's been through this many more times and as Rob says, often these can be revised and addressed again. Um, and then likewise for the comments from a grant review, to have somebody really look at it and say, well, is this sort of dead in the water or is it something that you know they actually really liked but there were certain things that just needed to be tweaked a bit. So all rejections are not the same, although they can feel that way at first. And I think having somebody who can help you put it in perspective can be very helpful. Those are such important points. Did you have something just, else you I'm to just add? remembering something. I'm, I'm old enough to remember submitting paper manuscripts to journals. And I think this is a, a salient point about uh, the impetuosity of youth. Just take some time. I submitted something to endocrinology. It took a little bit longer to get reviewed and comments back in those days. I got the letter that came through the post. I opened it. I read about the first two lines of the letter. 
assumed it was rejected, ditched it, started work in terms of revising a manuscript and sending it somewhere else. I went back to that rejection letter probably three or four months later after I'd already submitted it to a lesser journal to realise it hadn't been rejected at all. They just weren't accepting it in its current format. And it just goes to show that you really do need to have a calling off period to look at exactly what it is that they're saying. Yeah, I completely agree. When would you reach out to a program officer about a grant? When's the right time? Is there a certain situation? I think ideally you reach out to the program officer before you even submit it. And keep in mind that your program officer is actually your friend. I know that it's easy to think that everybody is judging you and there to criticize, but the program officers really want to build a portfolio of successful researchers in their field. And so the best way to approach grant writing is actually to be in touch with them long before you're ready to submit, to run by your ideas, ideally a draft of the aims. And they can not only tell you if it's appropriate for their institute or not study section, yeah, probably institute, but that um, they can give you guidance on how to craft the aims to be most likely to be successful. Uh, of course, the system is really quite different in, in the UK. Again, I, I agree with Joy that re- reaching out to funders before you even start writing necessarily, just, just floating ideas, I think can be very useful. If you're going for personal awards, I think it's invaluable to actually pop down to the Wellcome Trust, go to the BBSRC, to the MRC and say, look, this is the stage in my career that I'm at. What are my chances? What's the most appropriate thing for me to be applying for? It's not in their interest to give you false hope. I've always found them to be very encouraging and constructive with what they say. In terms of internal mechanisms that you'd hope people had available to them at at the places that they work. I mean, going again to peers and mentors who have had success with a particular funder, showing them your draft, grant proposals, you know, running mock study sections. You know, we don't really do study sections in the UK, but we're creating our own sort of grant clinics. That's been really useful for me in particular. There, there will always be somebody who, who will spend some time with you to, to help improve your grant ideas, certainly. I should add that um, at least in the NIH applications, uh, your program officer can be very helpful also in giving you feedback to the discussion. They sit in on the study sections and they can often give you a flavor for the discussion that may not come across in the written comments that come back to you. So we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask if you had any last words of wisdom for that listener who's listening right now and is maybe in the in the middle of that bad day. I'll steal a line from a classic American novel, which is, uh, Tomorrow is Another Day. I thought you were going to sing from Annie. <laughs> <laughs> Would you mind? <laughs> Later, Anne. Okay, thank you. I think the couple of times in my career where, you know, as others have alluded to, there were sort of patches of really not enough funding or not enough productivity, I, I think... Uh, over time, you come to realize that really sometimes it is darkest before the dawn um, and that any moment it could turn around um, and that really you're not alone. There are a lot of people around to support you. It's good to remember that you're not alone. Thank you both to Dr. Joy Wu and Rob folks for joining us today. And also, I want to give a big thank you to our guest host, Dr. Cecilia Lo Wong. Thank you for all being here. It's good to be here. Thanks. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. To learn more, visit www.endocrine.org slash podcast. There you can find this episode and some helpful links. You can subscribe to Endocrine News Podcasts on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
be sure to leave a review on iTunes. And if there's a topic you'd like to see us cover on the podcast, let us know by emailing us at podcast at endocrine.org. Thanks again for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.